read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, but really the thought expressed in the 53rd chapter begins already in chapter 52, verse 13. And so we begin our reading at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and read through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. That which they had not heard, shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors." That far we read the Word of God. Our text is verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. This chapter the Ethiopian eunuch was reading as he returned from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, not understanding what he read, and therefore receiving a grace of God in the gift of Philip, whom the Spirit sent to that Ethiopian eunuch to open up and explain the chapter. His own inability to understand underscores the question of verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And the point is really, that no one can understand the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ 
in his own power. In fact, natural man, you, me, apart from the grace of God, would despise and reject this gospel and this Christ. To understand the gospel presupposes the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The work of revelation, the gift of God's grace giving us to understand. If therefore today you understand the gospel as it's set forth in this text, praise God for opening your eyes. The subject of the entire chapter is the servant of the Lord. As verse 13 of the previous chapter indicated, My servant shall deal prudently. Although Isaiah uses the concept of the servant of Jehovah in a broad way to refer to Israel as a nation and to refer to the prophets and the faithful among Israel as a nation, In our text, he's using it in a more narrow way to refer to Jesus Christ. And he speaks of the exaltation of Christ. We look at Isaiah 52, which speaks of the humiliation, the suffering of Jesus. It is true, of course, that that's what's on the foreground here. But this suffering, as the prophets would tell us again and again, is the means and necessary way to the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords seated at Jehovah's right hand. He must, however, suffer. For there is no glory at the right hand of God except He laid down His life. Now remember what that says to you and to me. Who are united to Him by a true living faith and whom He represented before God. There is glory coming for you. A place being prepared in heaven for the church of all ages. But it required not only the suffering of Jesus Christ to earn it for sinners. Also the preparing of you and me for it requires suffering. But at the very head of the chapter is that question, verse 1, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And the answer, although not expressed, really is this. Very few. Very few. And the question is now, why? This gospel that there's a Jesus Christ who saves from sin, a Christ who's now exalted at the right hand of God and governs all things and prepares heaven for the church, that gospel is the good news of salvation. Why do not all believe it? All are sinners. All are in need of this salvation. Why are not the hearts of all filled with joy? And the answer is on the one hand, Yes, that God reveals it only to some, but from the perspective of our text, the answer is this. When you look at that Christ revealed in the gospel, you say, Him? He doesn't look like He could save me. The text draws our attention to the uncomely appearance of Jehovah's suffering servant. And to that I call your attention this morning. The uncomely appearance of Jehovah's suffering servant. Notice first its prophetic description. Secondly, its natural effect. And third, its divine purpose. Before we get into how the... uh, prophet describes the servant of Jehovah, the question has to be faced, is he looking at and describing the servant merely from the viewpoint of his human nature, his face and his arms and his legs? Is he, as it were, saying, I have a snapshot conceived in my mind, I have a photograph of how this man will look, and he really will be among the most unsightly and uncomely, we might say ugly, 
persons you've ever seen. Is that what he's doing? And the answer is no, not first of all, and not merely. It is not merely the outward appearance of the man. Now it may be that also as to his outward appearance, Jesus Christ appeared very lowly. That's even likely. But the point of the prophet here is to point us to the appearance of Jesus, not in his human nature, just his face and his hands and his arms and his legs, but as the servant of Jehovah, as the one who bore the office of the mediator of the covenant, as the prophet, the priest, and the king. When he appeared on earth, and when the Spirit was poured out on him on his baptism, to make known that he was the one who would save Israel, at that point the people looked at him as regards as being a prophet and a priest and a king and said, Him? I don't think so. That the prophet has especially the office of the Savior in mind here, as opposed merely to the human nature and his physical appearance, is evident from his calling him the servant of the Lord. 13 of the previous chapter. He's speaking of this man who will come to carry out a work. A work on behalf of the covenant and kingdom of God. In the second place, it's clear from the reference in our text to the arm of the Lord. This one of whom the prophet speaks is the arm, that is the power and the strength of Jehovah God. He is the one whom Jehovah is going to use to redeem His covenant people to Himself. And it's from that perspective that He describes His appearance. And in the third place, Verse 2 indicates that this one grows up before Jehovah to the face of Jehovah. Again, to do the work Jehovah would have him to do. It isn't describing the servant as how Jehovah sees him. It's describing the servant in the work he does and in the office he holds from the viewpoint of how humans see him. And there are two things that the text says now about the appearance of the servant of Jehovah. In the first place, our attention is drawn in verse 2 to his origins. So not just his appearance as such, but where he came from. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. That's where he will come from. And because he comes from these humble origins, the Jews will say, you can't look for salvation from him. The reference to a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground is in part a reference to the fact that the royal line of David had been cut down, as it were. Other times, too, the Scriptures, especially the prophets, and Isaiah often, speaks of that line of David as if it had been a stately, tall, strong tree. The promise of God had been to give David a son, and him a son, and him a son, and that finally there would come a son who would reign forever and ever, and the throne of David would have no end. And the reference then, or the picture, was to a tree that grew tall and strong. It was the tallest and strongest of all trees. And you expected it would stand there forever and provide shade and provide fruit and provide all that man needs. But that tree is cut down. The ground around it now is dried up. You don't expect the stump that's left to put forth another tree. Usually if you look for another tree, you dig out the stump, you get rid of it, you prepare the soil, and you plant a new sapling there. But Jehovah says through the prophets again and again, keep watching that stump. It looks dead. There appears to be no life in it. But there's going to come a little root, a sucker as it were. A little sapling is going to grow out of those roots again. 
that's the one you look for. And so the prophet is saying here that this, the origins of Jesus Christ will be that he arises, as it were, out of that tree, the line of David, which Jehovah had promised would be the source of Israel's salvation. But when in fact that happened, rather than the Jews looking at Jesus and saying, He is the promised Messiah, they instead looked to the humility of His origins and said, He cannot be the promised Messiah. The first place, historically, that was realized because His parents were nobodies. Joseph, Mary, who are they? That they were, in fact, both from the line of David did not matter to the Jews. They were nobodies from Nazareth and from Bethlehem. And that, secondly, has to do with the humility of the origins of Jesus Christ. From Nazareth and from Bethlehem, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To ask the question in the minds of the Jews was to answer it. You cannot expect salvation from this man. And in the third place, he wasn't of the high priestly line. Maybe he's from the kingly line, but we've long stopped looking for salvation from the line of David, had the Jews. Ever since the time of the captivity, that line had not been restored. Now it's the chief priests who are the leaders of the Jews. It's the Pharisees who are the leaders. We look for salvation from them, and Jesus was not from them. His origins. Don't be surprised then, you who represent Jesus Christ and are called Christians because the spirit of his anointing is in you, if you also are despised because your origins, generally now your spiritual origins, are nothing to boast of and nothing to impress men. That, first of all, in the text, his origins were humble, but then his form, that secondly, the last part of verse 2, he hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The last part of verse 2, the second, or shall I say the fourth part of the verse, explains the third part of the verse. He hath no form. Literally, he doesn't have a shape. Well, of course he has a shape. Of course he has hands, feet, etc. Of course there's something that defines his appearance. But the point is there's nothing attractive about it. He hath no comeliness. We shall see him. But there's no beauty that we should desire him. He has no glory. He has no charisma. He has no attractiveness. And that too is true of Jesus Christ. He was a great prophet. And even those who hated him knew that there was something great about the man. That his words had a power. But it was his words, not the man as such. And to the degree he spoke of great things, and to the degree he asserted himself as being a king, he didn't promise the kind of salvation and kingship that the Jews were looking for, a deliverance from Rome. He did miracles. And yet the people were only interested in his doing miracles for the benefit they would get from it. The bellies that would be filled the sicknesses that they would no longer have plague them, but that these miracles pointed to Him and His greatness that was lost on them. We have, therefore, in our text, a great contrast between what we read in verse 13 of the previous chapter, He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He shall be worshipped and adored. He shall be the one who holds sway and holds power. We have in our text such a direct contrast to that 
He's lowly. He's humbled. And you don't look for salvation from Him. This part of Isaiah's prophecy has a twofold application to the church of Jesus Christ today. The first is that you and I see in Jesus Christ a picture of who and what we appear to be by nature. Or let me state it this way. All of his appearance underscored he'd be rejected of men because they saw in him the bearing of the curse and wrath of God for sin. Whose sin? Your sin. My sin. How our Savior is described in the text is what you and I deserve. In fact, it's a picture to you and to me of what sin does. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall did not appear uncomely. They were glorious. What was their glory? It wasn't, first of all, that Eve had the most beautiful face and the longest flowing hair. It wasn't, first of all, that Adam was a picture, the epitome of manhood and masculinity. It was that they were perfect in the sight of God. And when they lost that perfection and sold themselves to sin, they became unsightly, ugly, uncomely. So you and so me by nature. And therefore the second application is that even now, though the church of Jesus Christ has been redeemed from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, you should not be surprised if the world, and even many who call themselves Christians, look on the church of Jesus Christ and say the same thing about her. Her origins are nothing to speak of. She's full of people who are themselves sinners and have all kinds of problems, the world and false Christians will say. And she appears so unglorious. She doesn't have the power to fix the social problems of society. She is inept at dealing with the economic issues of the day. She keeps herself out of the political problems. Why would you look for salvation in the church? I didn't say from the church, as if the church is actually our Savior. But why would you look for salvation in and through the church of Jesus Christ? Don't be surprised that people say that about you and us and true believers everywhere. We share, as the spiritual body of Christ, this lack of form and comeliness that characterized our Lord Himself. Now as the prophet speaks of this unsightly appearance of Jesus Christ, he goes on to speak of the effect, the natural effect that this appearance has on man. And again, there's a twofold effect here. On the one hand, men pass judgment on him. When the prophet says that he hath no form nor comeliness, he's not making an objective description of the Savior. He is rather all setting forth the subjective response of humans as they look at Him. They look at Him and they pass judgment on Him. He is not desirable to me. In this sense, how different Jesus Christ was to what a Saul and a David had been. You read through different chapters in 1 Samuel when both Saul and David are brought to the attention of the people of Israel. The people of Israel immediately loved them both. Why? They didn't know the men. They looked at them and they liked what they saw. 
Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. They liked that. David had a ruddy face, a reddish face. And that to them was a sign of health, of vigor and vitality, and of beauty. Jesus was void of such. They looked on Jesus and said, we don't like what we see. Therefore, the second effect of this on humanity is that they would not believe the report. Who hath believed our report? And their report was the gospel itself that said not only in this man is your salvation, but it said also do not look at the man right now as you see him out of your earthly eyes of unbelief. Don't judge and pass judgment on him on that basis. This man is going to be the Savior of the world. This man is going to die but then rise again. This man is going to be extolled and be very high and exalted. They did not believe that. How can this man save us? That report which is not believed was for all that a very consistent report by many men. Notice how Isaiah puts that in the plural. Who hath believed our report. You go back to Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, both, of meth- both messianic psalms written by David. Both psalms that speak in the earlier part of the psalm of the suffering of the Savior. And both psalms end by speaking of his exaltation and glory. You look at many other of the prophets and the same thing. Look at Zechariah, for instance, who speaks so often of the sufferings of the Savior, but in the end of the gathering of the kingdom of God. And so the point I'm making is that this report, this declaration of the gospel that in and through Jesus Christ, a great salvation will be accomplished and a future great day will come. That report, many spoke and who hath believed it? Few. Very few. By Isaiah's day, the entire northern kingdom of Israel had rejected the report. They were separate now from the southern kingdom, those ten northern tribes. And they were no longer looking for a Messiah. They were simply content to be as godless and wicked as the nations around. But it wasn't a whole lot better in the southern kingdom in Isaiah's day. There too, the Jews were wicked. Their leaders were wicked. The report that the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs and the Ezekiels bring is one that hardly anyone believes. And they, the Jews will persecute the prophets who bring the report. Who hath believed our report? So there you have the twofold effect on man. They look at that one and say, He doesn't look like he can save. And therefore they say of the news of salvation he will bring, it cannot be. Now, when I call this the natural effect, what do I mean? Well, I mean, first of all, that this is the immediate reaction of men. They judged a book by its cover, as you and I are prone to do. We too look at the outward and form an immediate response. And you can't very quickly change a person's mind when they've formed their immediate response. It is rather difficult, pastors sometimes have to do this with parishioners and others, to try to convince him or her that their immediate response simply is not founded on evidence. It was emotional, it was subjective, it was immediate, and it ought not be their response. But that's hard work, because you and I, and men, and humanity is depraved. And that also 
is what I mean when I call this a natural effect. Man, whose eyes have not been opened by the Spirit of God, and who have not been given a new heart of faith, will not see in Jesus Christ a glorious Savior. What the prophet says, therefore, humbles us. And I emphasize the us because he's speaking of the natural effect that the news of salvation has, not on the Philistines, not on the Gentiles, not on the Ethiopians, but on the Jews. On those who had been the people of God. On them to whom the promises came and the revelation. Who were the children of Abraham. And so should still be looking for that one seed of Abraham in the singular. Who had boasted about David once being their king. And so should still be looking for the coming of the son of David. This is the effect on the Jews. This is the effect on you and on me, apart from grace. And so what the Apostle says is borne out throughout history. Not only did the Jews not receive Jesus Christ, but when in John 10, he speaks to them of the very moment his hour being come. The very moment when he will appear to be the most humiliated to suffer the greatest as the very way, basis of being exalted and extolled, the people would say, that makes no sense. We read in John 12 verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Jews don't believe, and the clearest indication that they don't believe is that they will crucify him. Oh, somebody else will do the deed itself, the Roman servants, but it will be at the clamor of the Jews. Away with him! Crucify Him. We don't like what we see in Him, and we rather He were out of the way. There's no amount of makeup, no cosmetics, no earthly transformation that will help with this man and our view of Him. Just get rid of Him. Not only in Jesus' day, but the fulfillment continues today as well. And that's amazing because He is now exalted. The prophecy of the exaltation of the Savior has been fulfilled. There's more to come in His return for judgment and His reigning in the kingdom of God, world without end. But there is fulfillment of that part of the prophecy too. And yet still men say, I'm a sinner. You're going to tell me that? You're going to tell me that my only hope cannot be found in me, that even if I am a sinner, I can't improve myself? That there's no hope for moral reformation in and from humanity? You're going to tell me that I have to look to one? You're going to tell me that that one is not only human, but he is the Son of God in the flesh? And that in him... The arm of the Lord and the power of Jehovah to save is revealed. No. Preach that today and men will be divided. That's what happened when Paul preached the gospel. In every city to which he went, some believed, some didn't believe. And that was the greatest and the harshest division that ever was known among those people to that point in time. The difference between the believers and the unbelievers. Teach that, and those who believe are going to be despised and hated. And so, we come to see the real reason why the church of Christ, you and me on earth, are going to be despised. The gospel 
men hate. So that the Apostle Paul, again, will quote our text. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing that very gospel they don't believe is the power of God to save His people. Remember that, young people? When because the church is despised, and because many say, all of the sins of the church past, I can, I can rack a pr- pretty long list of ways in which it appears to me that the church is made up of people as sinful as the world. And you may say to them right away, you don't need to take the time. I believe you already. You don't have to convince me that the church is made up of people as sinful as the world. But when you're going to use that to say, don't be a member of the church, despise the church, leave the church, then I'm going to say, just a moment. In the church, the gospel is preached. And even though that gospel that's preached is a gospel that I by nature despise and reject, yet by grace, I find that that very gospel works a true and living faith in me. Builds me up in that true and living faith. I must be a member of the church. In both the sending of his son as the Messiah and giving to him an uncomely appearance and the natural effect that men look at him and despise him, Jehovah has a purpose. And that purpose is threefold. The first is to remind the church of Jesus Christ in every age That how we view something and how God views something are often drastically different. And it becomes my calling to view something or somebody not as I see him or her or it, but as Jehovah God does. There's a clue in the text that how men see Jesus Christ is different from how Jehovah sees him. It says, he shall grow up, that is, Christ shall grow up before him, before Jehovah as a tender plant. Which is to say in the first place that the entire raising up and upbringing and growth and development of Jesus Christ was at every moment under the sovereign control and watchful care of Jehovah God. He didn't just happen to grow up. Jehovah gave him breath every day. Jehovah supplied him with food every day. Jehovah saw to it that his own son in the flesh developed into the man he must be in order to do the work he must do as the mediator of the covenant. But in addition to pointing us to the fact that Jehovah watches and therefore uh, governs the growth and development of Jesus Christ, those words before him suggest that Jehovah saw him. And the question is, how did Jehovah see him. Men saw him as unsightly, uncomely, and they despised him. How did Jehovah see him? And the answer is that although it's true that Jehovah saw him as guilty on account of our sin, that Jehovah had imputed to his only begotten Son our unrighteousness and depravity, that for all that, Jehovah saw him as perfectly righteous. Saw him as obedient. Saw him as his only begotten son. It's as if 
A person came to a father or mother of a little child and said, you know, I looked at your child and I compared your child to other children and I concluded that you have one of the most unsightly, even ugliest children around. And the parent said in response, I do not see my child that way at all. That's my child. So Jehovah God saw his son as precious in his sight, lovely, perfectly obedient to his law, for that was and is the standard on which Jehovah judges a man and his sightliness, not What does he look like outwardly? Not what great things can he accomplish on earth. Has he kept the law of God? Purpose of Jehovah is to drive home that you and I must view Jesus Christ that way. And when we look on him, even as we read of him in the gospel accounts, as he worked on earth, we must say, I see the Son of God there. Now we ought to take a moment to broaden the application. When you hear somebody say what they see in one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, and as they proceed to cut down the brother or sister, because what they see is not what pleases them, then take the trouble to say just a moment. Don't you think for a moment that in the day of judgment, that's what Jesus Christ will say about another for whom he died. You are seeing wrongly. You might be setting forth truth, facts anyway. It might be that there is in our brother or sister a weakness and you've identified the weakness. Where's the beauty though? Why don't you look on the beauty of the brother or sister? See how he or she is in relation to Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's an application that can be made. And how about this one, young people? When you meet new people or people for the first time, don't first of all be enamored with what fun they are, what charisma, what personality they have. Ask yourself this question, is this person going to help me grow in my relationship to Christ as I live with him or her in friendship, or is he or she going to hinder my relationship with Christ? That's what matters. The first purpose of God is to teach us to view things and people the way he does. And not the way you and I do by nature. Second purpose of God is to underscore that we can't. We cannot have the assessment and the view and evaluation that Jehovah Jehovah does in and of ourselves. We cannot. For we are depraved. Who hath believed our report? Few. Why? Because man cannot. I come back to John 12. We quoted that just a moment ago. He'd done so many miracles, but they didn't believe on him. Why? That the saying of Isaiah in our text might be fulfilled. And then you read in verse 39, not just that they didn't believe or chose not to believe, but therefore they could not believe. Because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Cannot believe. I'm going to come to a polemic. A polemic is a taking issue with a false doctrine. It is very popular among Christianity. To teach that the gospel as it's preached is an offer in which God invites everyone who hears to see the glory of His Son and to put 
your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And part of this Arminian idea of this well-meant offer is that you have the power to do it. You can believe. And another part of this idea is that if a preacher holds out the gospel properly, he, pre- he presents Jesus Christ as a glorious, attractive Savior. So you not only can, but you want to. And do you see that both of those ideas are smashed on the rocks of our text? The preacher may preach the glorious gospel ever so passionately, but in fact the Jesus Christ who's presented in it from every human viewpoint is a lowly, unsightly creature. And then, who hath believed our report? None. Why not? Because man cannot. And long before there was an Arminian notion or at least the name Arminianism, and a term called the free offer of the gospel, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah said, but there is a wrong thinking in the, eye, in the minds of men. It's been there as long as men have been depraved. And we're going to address that. You look at Jesus Christ, you don't want to believe Him. That's the depravity of the human nature. Therefore, the third purpose of God in underscoring this is a saving purpose. He's brought us low. Even in the text, we've been brought low in order to be raised up. We're brought low by being showed who and what we are by nature, our own inabilities and limitations, unworthy of the least of the blessings of God. And now the the gospel itself, the very report that's despised, will build us up, beloved, For the third purpose of God here is to say that the faith now which you and I do have is freely given of God Himself, sovereignly given to those whom the Father wills to be saved. This too is implied in the text. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And at no point in the sermon did I say absolutely nobody. I said few. But then you say, there's one. And there's one. And there's another. You say, why? What is there about them that they believe? And here's the answer. Nothing different in them. You and I who believe are as unworthy and as sinful as others who do not believe. But that the arm, the power of the Lord, in saving His people, works faith. Hearts of those whom He's appointed to everlasting life. Do you believe? Praise God. The implication of this is that all whom the Father has appointed to sit in His kingdom, to share in the glory of the exalted Jesus Christ, surely will being underscored, is that the way in which He will bring us who are undeserving, unworthy, and even dead by nature to share in the glory of the Lord is the way of renewing our hearts, our minds, our will, our understanding, and working faith in us. For another doctrinal point being underscored in this prophecy is that there is no salvation apart from faith. Say, I don't have to believe. I'll still be in the kingdom of the Messiah. And you state, folly. There is no salvation apart from faith. But God gives faith to His own. Now as the church of Jesus Christ preaches this gospel as she does mission work, as evangelism societies of the churches 
preach the gospel and declare the gospel in their work. And as you and me, as individual Christians, who bear the name of Jesus Christ in our hearts and on our lips, go speak to others this gospel, you are not surprised, and I am not surprised, when many say, get out of here. But when others say, what a beautiful word that was. I've just been shown the right way, the only way, the sure way of salvation. And when the world makes you a laughing stock, say this. But even in that, the arm of the Lord is revealed. And even in that, Jehovah is accomplishing His purpose. For I've learned not to fear men. I've learned not to look on the outward things. I've learned that how Jehovah views a matter is what really matters. Amen. We thank Thee, Father, for working in us the faith that beholds Jesus Christ in His glory and bows before and worships Him and Thee. Thy arm and Thy right hand have gotten us salvation. We confess it was not of ourselves. We weren't worthy. We were not even among the most worthy of men. We too, in our origins, are nothing. And in our earthly appearance and influence, are nothing. And gladly we say, we are nothing in order that we might say, Christ is all. Now in Him, to Him, and through Him be glory, world without end.